with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. It's great to be with you on this Saturday morning, whether you're at the workplace or just kicking around home. I'm Scott Colborn, and you're not. (laughs) Okay, enough of the frivolity. I haven't had my coffee yet, so give me some latitude, folks. Over here on my left is Jim Shorney. Jim, take the mic for a minute, will you? Good morning, Scott, and I remember which TV program that... uh that line came from. Anyway, it's a a beautiful overcast day here in Lincoln, Nebraska, with uh, temperatures hovering in the uh, 40s and 50s. A little bit of rain, but uh, the good news is no snow. The weather gurus, including Dr. Ken Dewey, are telling us that uh, the snow is over with for the season, and spring is impending. So that's good news for all of us, I think. Jim, we've got a great program for us today. We've got uh, Charlene with Pet Talk up first, then Lloyd Arbach and his segment called Invisible Signals. He's the well-known parapsychologist mm-hmm. that's been on here many, many times. You know, of course, to me, Invisible Signals means radio, but uh, I think he's got more in mind than that. Our main guest here is Preston Dennett, one of our favorite guys. He's got a brand new book called Undersea UFO Base. And he's our main guest. Let's start the program with Charlene and Pet Talk. She should be right there. Hi, Charlene. Let's do that again. Hi, Charlene. There we go. Good morning. (laughs) Hey, it's great to have you with us. What's going on at the Capitol Humane Society? Oh, we're having a good day so far. Looking forward to seeing a lot of visitors and maybe potential adopters to come in and see the great animals that are looking for homes. Okay, what's going on in terms of activities? Uh, We will be having our kitten shower coming up on May 12th, and that is at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center. Um, It's a fun event from about 11 to 2, and you can meet kittens. You can enjoy refreshments. Um, We do have a wish list because we will be seeing kittens come through our door, so we need things to help them like kitten milk replacer and kitten food, so we uh, appreciate donations. And we also have our Tails and Trails Pet Walk coming up, and that is May 19th at the Fallbrook Town Center. Um, You can register today by going to our website at CapitalHumaneSociety.org and help us to raise funds so we can continue to do our important work. Of course, for those of you that don't know and have lived under a rock, Fallbrook is out northwest of Lincoln proper. And uh, it's a neat little area with uh, all kinds of fun stuff to see and do. We've had the event out there for the last few years, and it is just a really pretty area and a lot of fun. Okay, who's up for adoption for our first cat for adoption? We are going to talk about Dennis. And Dennis (laughs) is kind of peeking out there. He's very cute with a little freckle on his nose. He's uh, white and black. He's about three years old, arrived as a lost pet, and he had a pretty significant wound all the way down his back. Um, It is healing up nicely, but he's missing fur there, so it's quite noticeable. But it will grow back, and he will be as handsome as ever, and he's ready to find a new home where he'll be kept safe indoors so he doesn't get hurt. Yeah, and he looks like he's taking it all in stride, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a happy kitty. So the question would be, is is Dennis... The menace? A menace? Uh, I don't think so, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, who's next? Next, we're going to talk about uh, Steve. And Steve has a pretty little bow tie on. <laughs> He's a cutie uh, looking at the camera in a very sweet way. About a year old. Also arrived as a lost pet that was not claimed. Um, ready to meet a great family and be a charming sidekick. He's just sitting there saying, hi, I'm Steve the cat. I'm adorable, yeah. I'm adorable. Okay, Dennis and Steve, two cats are better than one, and then there's... Next up is Sir Hector. So he is a very handsome tabby cat, about two years old, arrived at the Humane Society as a lost pet that was not claimed. So he's a cool-looking cat, has a great personality, and ready to move in with a wonderful family to start having some fun. Looks like he's just strutting down the runway, getting ready to model some fine cat fur patterns. Exactly. Yeah, gorgeous cat. Look at those whiskers. Sir Hector. (laughs) Now, is there a background on that name? Where did that come from? I don't know. It's, It's pretty clever. Suggestion: Maybe you should post explanations for some of these names. <laughs> that would be fun. Sir Hector, his picture is at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. That's what Jim and I are looking at. Mm-hmm. You guys and gals can as well. It's CapitalHumaneSociety.org. Or if you want to go out and see Sir Hector, Steve, or Dennis, or the rest of the great cats, here is Charlene with Hours Open Today and Tomorrow. Please visit our Pylock Pet Adoption Center. We are open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 530. Okay, and when the good folks show up to look at these really cool cats, what can they bring you for a donated item or items? Uh, We can always use things like towels and washcloths, uh, things like that. Um, We also, again, we'll be seeing a lot of kittens right now, so um, you could check out our kitten shower wish list and consider donating kitten milk replacer or kitten pate cat food. Um, It just really helps us. uh, We we have foster families who help us with these kittens, and we provide all the supplies, so it helps us when um, people donate the items that we need that we can share with our wonderful foster families. This is Charlene with the Capital Humane Society. It's time for Dogs for Adoption. And who's number one? Charlie. Hi, Charlie. He, isn't he a happy guy? He's a big old 103-pound lab wow. shepherd mix. Look at that. Five years old, just adorable with his little folded ears and big floppy tongue. What a handsome uh, he wants, fella. <laughs> yep. He wants very much to be the center of attention, have a family that adores him. Um, He was surrendered to the Humane Society. Uh, Somebody, I guess a previous owner, said he wasn't a huge fan of men, but he's been really happy around our male volunteers and male staff. So uh, he's he's a friendly fellow. Um, He does seem to chase small dogs, so he needs to go to a home without them. Well, everybody's got to have a hobby, right? (laughs) But he is, I mean, he's just a big and very happy dog. Okay, Charlie leads off our Dogs for Adoptions. We're looking at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. You can, too. Our next dog is... Opal. And Opal is a Walker Coonhound mix. A state female about two years old. So she is a hound. She's going to have the hound barking, the hound uh, the way that they like to dig and sniff. 
Uh, she was actually adopted but returned because she was digging and she was jumping on counters. <laughs> so oh she needs somebody who's going to work with her. She clearly needs some more training and positive direction. Uh, somebody who understands mm-hmm. and appreciates her breed. So she knows someone is out there and she's ready to meet you. That's a nice looking coonhound. Mm-hmm. I think she just needs to have somebody say, Opal? You ain't nothing but a hound dog. Maybe she needs some coons to chase. Just a crocking all the time. Okay. There you go. Charlie Opal, and then there's... Leo, and he is a six-year-old neutered male pit bull. He is super smart, quite strong, so looking for somebody who can keep up with him. He loves to go and play, um, but he sits and he stays. He shakes. He's a sweet guy. Uh, looking for somebody, again, who has the time to provide him with the exercise that he needs. Um, notes say that he was not good with cats, so he does need a home without cats. And we are asking that he meets um, kids and other dogs prior to adoption. Okay, Leo. He's not the lion, but he's a great-looking dog. Charlie, Opal, and Leo. See their pictures Read their descriptions at capitalhumanesociety.org. And better yet, go out and see them. Charlene, what are the hours open again today and tomorrow? Our Pylock Pet Adoption Center will be open today and tomorrow from 11 to 530. And if people want to come out and look at dogs today and they want to bring out something to donate, what can they bring you? Uh, We have a long wish list on our website, so you could go through that and see what items you might just have. Um, but we can always use things like blankets, towels, uh, things to help us provide bedding for the animals. So we appreciate every donation. Uh, Purina dog chow and puppy chow? Yes, that would be great. Okay. Um, we go through a lot of that. <laughs> I bet. Okay, thank you so much, Charlene, for all that you do. Our best to you and the staff. Thank you for everything. Charlene and friends of the Capital Humane Society, make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or cat. I'm Scott Colborn, and, uh, well, the uh, uh, folks are away. The the mice will play. My uh, computer and my my playlist is all messed up here, so I've been trying to scramble and be the on-air host as well as trying to figure out the knot that that the computer playlist is in. I think I've got it figured out. And, you know, nobody would know because you're covering it so well. Hey, Jim, how's the coffee, by the way? Coffee's great. It's the Sulawesi. Is it? That's it's good stuff. Next up is our friend and colleague, Lloyd Arbach. Lloyd is a guy that Hollywood and TV shows call when they want to talk about the paranormal. Who are you going to call? And and you're going to call Lloyd Orbach. Lloyd is taught also at the college level. He teaches classes currently online. Uh, he's the author of multiple books that should be in everybody's library. And he joins us from the West Coast. Hey, Lloyd, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Scott. Doing fine, thanks. What's going on with you? I just got an email saying you're going to be in San Francisco on Sunday. Uh, yeah, well, I live in, in the Bay Area. I'm outside of San Francisco, but I'm doing a talk at the the United Irish Cultural Center tomorrow. They had asked me to do something this spring on ghosts and psychic experiences, so 
I'm joining them, and uh, there's some thought there that their center might be might be uh, have a few extra guests, you might say. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna check. We're gonna we're gonna check it out tomorrow afternoon before the talk. Lloyd, I got to tell you that the back in the the uh, the VCR days when we all got VCR machines, the very first VCR tape that I purchased was Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Oh, I remember that movie. And it, as a kid, it just scared the dickens out of me with a banshee at the very end. Really? So that that brings up the idea that, uh, in, in fact, the movie has a very young Sean Connery. Uh, right. That brings up the the uh, aspect of conversation that the the Irish, the Celtic people, apparently have deeply ingrained in them this coexistence with, if you'll permit me to say, the paranormal. It's yeah, to- I, I think I know. Uh, I mean, I, I know a medium from uh, Ireland who I've worked with quite a bit, um, and Sandra has told me that it's still very much a part of their culture. Uh, do you think that is uh, especially true of the Irish, or somebody dug deep enough? Could you go to a place in the world and also find that similar connection with the people live there? In other words, is are the Irish special? What what makes that significant? Well, I mean, they're special in one respect in that um, they're more modernized than a lot of other cultures that might have this intense uh, folklore that is still part and parcel of their belief system. But you know, that's it's the same in different parts of the world. It's just different folklore. You find people in different parts of Eastern Europe that have their own folklore that is, you know, about the supernatural. And, of course, a lot of it's not psychic, um, but they do have this folklore that is part and parcel of the way they see the world. And then you have the psychic elements, too. So, for example, down in Brazil, uh, most people who are very Catholic are also spiritists. So they believe in communicating with spirits, which, of course, would be an anathema to a lot of other Catholics in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. This is Salt Lloyd. Culture. This is Lloyd Arbach, and uh, his last name is spelled A U E R B A C H. And if you're in the San Francisco area on Sunday, he'll be talking about Irish psychic experiences, and that's at the United Irish Cultural Center, twenty seven hundred forty fifth Avenue, <clears throat> and it starts Sunday at 4 p.m. And is this open to the public? Yeah, it is. Uh, it's open to anybody who happens to be there. It's um, $15. They're asking for cash at the door. It's kind of a fundraiser for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and speaking of fundraisers, I'm doing another one uh, in New York on May 6th, although that will be a very different kind of ex- uh, uh, talk. Since it's for the Forever Family Foundation, and it's a, a, an afterlife luncheon, and I'll be co-presenting with Kim Russo, who's a certified medium for the foundation, but also was the star of the TV show The Haunting of. Okay, and it focuses on um, afterlife. We're, we're gonna, yeah, so I want to be talking about the evidence for um, survival of bodily death. Uh, I'll be presenting on on what we find in parapsychologists generally 
some of the, the best evidence or the kinds of best evidence we get that strongly support the concept that consciousness survives the, body, the death of the body, which, you know, that evidence includes reincarnation, it includes apparitions, which is my specialty, and, of course, includes medium, mediumistic communication, or specifically evidential mediumistic communication, which is something that Kim does. And then Kim will follow me, so I'm kind of her warm-up. She's going to do a gallery reading of the audience for that fundraiser. Interesting. That's May 6th, and that takes place in New York. Long Island, yep. Yep, and people can find out by going to foreverfamilyfoundation.org. Okay, Lloyd, tell us about your, um, your most recent book that came back into publication. That would be Mind Over Matter, and you're in the book, of course, Scott. <laughs> Thank uh, you. I you talk about the stuff that I did with Martin Caden, the, the uh, late science and science fiction writer who was able to move objects and teach people to do it. Uh, the book really, you know, one of the things that people think about when they hear the phrase mind over matter, they think that it's all about what they see on TV and in the movies about moving objects or um, breaking things like Carrie did in the movies. But that's only a part of it. That That would be a piece of the range of things that people can do with their minds when we talk about physically interacting with the world around us. And I take a fairly broad view based on what we do and do not know in science. So, for example, we do not know how the placebo effect works. Our minds unconsciously accept that something that is not medical um, doesn't have any sort of medicinal value in, in reality, but somehow our minds accept that it does and creates an effect for many people, not everyone, but for many people, that would be the same or better than a medicine. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the opposite of a psychosomatic illness where your stress is causing you to have a physical effect in your body that's negative. Uh, that's often called a nocebo effect. So I think a broad view of this whole idea of psychokinesis of mind over matter, that it starts with our minds affecting our own bodies, and it then kind of moves outward in, in the range of things it can do, both in the, the larger physical world and also affecting electronics and things inside computers and all sorts of microscopic effects. Yeah, the, the gentleman that, uh, that Lloyd mentioned, Martin Caden, uh, when Martin was in Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, and Lloyd had an early laptop computer. And uh, when Lloyd would walk into our classroom, the laptop wouldn't function. Uh, he would take it out in the hallway uh, or back to his room, it would work fine. But in that vicinity, if you'll allow me to say, within the vicinity of Martin Caden, <laughs> that laptop wouldn't work. <laughs> well, it was more than that. It, you know, that was a, a, one of the early power books, the Mac, Macintosh power books. And Marty's wife, Dee Dee, had warned me that Marty, and I knew Martin didn't like computers, but I was in the back of the room while he was talking. I was taking notes. And she said, you really shouldn't have that here. That here. So we were, I was having malfunctions, and eventually it seemed to crash. Um, I actually took it to my hotel room, was able to um, bleed off the, the small amount of information that's on, that was on those computers at that time onto an external hard drive, and then the hard drive crashed. Hmm. And uh, 
the book, the, the, the thing was not, was no longer under warranty. But when I sent it back to Apple, they, I told them what happened and they said, send it to us. And I did. And they replaced the hard drive because they had never seen a hard drive that failed the way that one did. Hmm. Well, that was a good stand-up move on that company there. Yeah. It was. It was. I think they were just more curious than anything else. Uh, you you kind of wonder if Martin could have had like a second gig, maybe uh, troubleshooting computers for a company. <laughs> okay, before we... Troubleshooting, probably beta testing and breaking them. There, there we go. go. Yeah, before we send that repair job out, uh, ship it over to Martin here over at Quality Control. <laughs> right. Hey, have you... Have you kept in contact with Dee Dee? Uh, how, how is she? She's doing fine. Um, I've talked to her a couple of times, not not extensively, but certainly when I was a, uh, when we were talking about reprinting Mind Over Matter, um, I needed to talk to her just to... <laughs> the publisher wanted me to get permission mm-hmm. to use Marty's stuff in the book, uh, which I had. I had written permission from Martin, but they decided that they wanted it also from Dee Dee, since uh, she is the heir. Um, but she got married, and uh, she's still working for American Airlines. She's doing great. Okay. She's down in Florida. Lloyd, it's always a pleasure to connect with you, uh, and please keep us posted on your work. Uh, folks, Lloyd Arbach will be this Sunday in San Francisco at the Irish United Irish Cultural Center, 2745th Avenue at 4 p.m., on Irish Psychic Experiences. If you know somebody that lives in the San Francisco or the Bay Area, that'll be something really fun. May 6th, you can check out the Forever Family Foundation. Lloyd will be in New York City, uh, and his focus is... Long Island. Excuse me, Long Island. And he'll be talking about the evidence for the afterlife. Okay, Lloyd, thank you so much for all you do. Have a great rest of the weekend. Thanks, Scott. You too. Bye-bye. Lloyd Arbach, uh, ESP Hauntings and Poltergeist would be a must-have in anybody's bookcase. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mind Over Matter, uh, I've got to pull my copy out again and, and read that again. What a great book and a great relationship that, that Lloyd and Martin, Martin Caden founded. Yeah. Jim, how have you been this last week? Pretty good. Well, I'm staying warm. I'm going to have you cross your fingers now as we check out this playlist and see if it's going to fire here. Okay? Oh, it's going to work fine. Okay. So if you want to go ahead and get Preston on the phone here. I will do that. We'll do the, we'll, God permitting, and the creek don't rise. <laughs> we'll uh, see if this is going to work here. I'm Scott Colborn. Stay tuned. We've got Preston Dennis and his brand new book, Undersea UFO Base, coming up next. That's the band called Enigma, and you'll see them around southeast Nebraska here. Cobalt is that last CD, and the track that we seem to play a lot, at least I do, is called Sky Dancer. Mm -hmm. Uh, With me is Jim Shorty, and Jim, uh, you reminded me last, or a couple weeks ago, that they've got... uh, in the near future, a new CD coming out. A new out. CD coming out. Yeah, it's at the, at the Engineers for Final Tweaks. And uh, Carolyn has promised to get me an advanced copy as, as soon as, as, as it's available. And if I can say this, they're uh, playing up in Wisner later today at a veteran's benefit. So, uh, uh, folks, if you're up in the area, please uh, stop by and thank some veterans and have a good time. 
You'll find Enigma and probably information about that on their Facebook page, too. Enigma, the ultimate acoustic experience. I'm Scott Colborn. You're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. And our next guest is one of our favorite guys. Preston Dennett is the author of 22 books, including this brand new one, Undersea UFO Base, an in-depth investigation of USO of USOs in the Santa Catalina Channel. Preston began researching UFOs in 1986. He'd heard about a dramatic sighting on the news by a pilot flying over Alaska. And he was curious. He asked family and friends, co-workers, what they thought. And he discovered that his brother and two friends had seen a structured UFO, which they chased for miles across a portion of California. His sister-in-law told him that she and her two friends observed a UFO over Van Nuys uh, Air, uh, Air Reserve Base. She later had a face-to-face encounter with two gray type ETs also in Van Nuys. Another sister-in-law revealed her own childhood encounters with short humanoids in Woodland Hills, California. Boy, Jim, it sounds like when he asked the question, he got a lot more than he thought he would. I say so. That's, family that's awesome. A friend revealed that he and his girlfriend had a scary close-up encounter with a triangular formation of lights while parked uh, in Topanga Canyon. Another friend in Topanga Canyon, a pilot and scuba diver, described how she and her friends saw an egg-like object fly over their home. Preston's co-workers also had dramatic encounters to share. And these accounts from people that he knew and trusted caused him intellectually to really consider the subject of UFOs seriously. So he plunged headlong into UFO research. Since this time, he's interviewed hundreds of witnesses and written 22 books, more than 100 articles. He's been featured in presentations and lectures all around the world. And he's also a guy that... uh, appears every first Saturday of the month on our show with his opening segment that we do, The Seen and the Unseen. And we're so fortunate to have him return today as a full-length main guest. Folks, here's Preston Dennett. Hi, Preston. Hey, Scott. Hi, Jim. Good morning, Preston. A beautiful cover. Is this your sister that did this? Yeah. Yeah, I'm so lucky. Um, we went back and forth about what we wanted to do, and uh, I've learned over the years that uh, I get to have control over my cover. So I've had a few that I'm not too happy about. Mm-hmm. Well, I just love and, the uh, coloring. I'm putting my foot down. It's it's beautiful. Uh, this, yeah, you know, it's actually accurate. It looks very much like that area. Oh, the mountains there. Awesome. This book represents quite a span of years, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. You know, a book normally takes a while to write, obviously. I mean, a year, I would say at least two, maybe. Mm-hmm. But this one has got to be about 10 years of research. Um, just it took me a real long time to put it together. I really wasn't planning on putting a book together on this um, particular subject. I'd already written an article about it. And, but I, I had to. The information just kept coming. It was getting bigger and bigger and more amazing. 
What you found, Preston, uh, and I appreciate this very much, is that you took a look at historically the number of reports of UFOs in this specific area, and you then had to say, why? Why are these concentrations of UFO sightings happening along this section of the California coastline? It was the first real head scratcher. I'm like, hmm, this is strange. Because, you know, it's not a huge body of water. I mean, there's Catalina Island. It's 26 miles out um, off the coast of Los Angeles. The Santa Catalina Channel, the San Pedro Channel, the Santa Monica Bay, the basin there, the Channel Islands. This whole area of water, for some reason, is super active when it comes to USOs. And uh, it's deep, actually. It goes about a mile deep in parts. There's trenches. Uh, it's deeper up, up in Northern California. There's the Monterey Trench. Uh, not nearly the levels of activity up north that there is down in this one stretch of water. Mm-hmm. You know, a couple hundred miles long, 26 miles wide or so, um, depending on where you mark the boundaries. But mile for mile, I'm going to say that this is the most active or one of the most active USO areas on our entire planet. We've mentioned that term USOs several times. Let's tell the listeners what that means. Right. It means uh, unidentified submerged object. And uh, UFOs are, and USOs are obviously the same thing, but you can't really call it UFO. Um, a flying object if it's down underwater. Mm-hmm. So that term was kind of coined. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it caught on. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this is the first thing that had me wondering is could there possibly be a base? Because um, there's just so many darn accounts in this one area, and they stretch back, gosh, almost 100 years, mm-hmm. and are still going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Charles Fort was a guy that I remember reading uh, his books when I was much younger. And there's a section where he talks about, uh, in the 17 to 1800s, reports of people at sea seeing things underwater that suggested uh, not just glowing fish, but some form of of craft. Uh, How much water do we have on the planet? I think I think the water dwarfs the landmass, doesn't it? Oh yeah, I think it's seventy-one, seventy-three percent. Uh, you know, almost uh, three-fourths, not quite two-thirds around there, but a lot. I mean, it's mostly water, so um, well, it makes total sense that UFOs and USOs, you know, would be flying around in and out of the water. Okay, if you've got a technology that allows you to. Uh, enter the water and travel just like you would through our atmosphere. If you wanted to park that that cruiser for a while, that scout ship, the convenient body of water nearby might be just the place to park it. Out of sight, out of mind, hiding quite literally in plain sight, albeit underwater. It's a lot different from having some sort of a parking garage where all the scout craft set down and people can see that stuff. I mean, to me, it makes perfect sense as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. They're obviously way far in advance of our own uh, ships and aircraft. And, uh, I mean, there was talk back in 1950s, 1960s of the Navy developing a so-called flying submarine. Now, it's possible they've done that. You know, that wouldn't surprise me. But even if they have, I don't think that their, you know, advanced aircraft would match anything towards what we're seeing. Because, mm-hmm. again, this stuff goes back before they were, I mean, when they were just talking about it, these ships were already coming in and out of the water. It was a great case. Uh, it occurred, let me see, in 1954. Japanese steamship, Aliki, is off the coast of Long Beach. And uh, see what they think is a fireball coming down out of the sky, hits the water. Next thing they know, you know, it goes underwater. It's coming back up out of the water and flies off. Back in 1954, I mean, we had nothing that could do that. No. Now, let alone the impact of the water. You know, we think the water is being thoroughly pliable, but if you're entering the water at speed, that's a lot, a lot of mass to suddenly encounter. Uh, yeah, it really is. You know, I, I went to Catalina Islands when I was like nine years old. We took a seaplane. Um, just a little, you know, twenty passenger plane, pretty small, mm-hmm. and uh, it lands on the water. And when you land on the water, it's just like cement. It goes bam, bam, ba, bam, bam, bam. And I'm like, holy cow! And then, you know, only as you start to slow down, you sink in. But yeah, our aircraft will shatter into a million little bits. These guys, these USOs, must have some sort of a force field. It's the only thing I can think of, because mm-hmm. it's not the shape. I mean, yeah, they're. Uh, saucer shaped in various shapes but I don't think that would be enough to streamline it to stop it from shattering into a million little bits I took a years ago a, a, a float plane and from Ely, Minnesota we flew into the boundary waters and uh, so it's it's not bad, you know, you're sitting in this um, shell of a plane and there's about six of us, we've got all of our gear the pilot says, hold on. And uh, when he starts to take off, everything metal begins to vibrate. It was a racket. You think the thing has fallen apart. You can see the, <laughs> you, the fuselage and the rivets moving back and forth. It's trying to overcome that inertia of going through the water there. And then once he lifts off the water, it's all gone. But that that momentary right before takeoff, man, that was just a din. Everything was rattling. I thought, my God, do I really want to do this? <laughs> hey, Preston, yeah, I I, that. I'm an old boy scout. I'm an Eagle Scout and proud of it. I have so many great memories of that experience. And uh, so I read with interest several of the accounts that you've got in your book with Boy Scouts. How about that 1952 know, that a, story? Oh, you know, that was a real treat, finding that. Because, you know, to hear one Boy Scout encounter, but, or two or three, but, yeah, I think there's like five or seven even. Um, and that 1952 one is a real humdinger. I mean, wow. This was um, in the same area where a lot of these encounters are taking place on Catalina Island. And uh, this involved actually 300 Boy Scouts. This is 1952, and 50 Boy Scout leaders. 
a big group of people who see this metallic craft. And it's hovering there in the sky, pretty close. It's on edge, actually, before it flips onto its side. It's got a really weird effect. Right next to this object, you can kind of see dark sky everywhere else around. Uh, it's normal blue sky. This is a full-on daylight sighting. So there was some sort of weird optical effect around this object, mm -hmm. uh, which is important, I think, because it shows that you know how these things might be operating. And it's also not the only uh, case in the book like this with weird optical effects in this exact area, too. So, yeah, what a sighting. They watched it for quite a while, and it finally darts off, and uh, they reacted the right way. The first thing they did is they all sat down and they wrote down their descriptions and they actually sent it off to March Air Force Base uh, and got a hold of the commander, Commander Charles Dicking, you know, of the entire base, uh, who basically thanked him for the report. And apparently that was it. There was no official investigation. Uh, kind of surprising to me because uh, with that many witnesses, it's undeniable. This is a really important case, I think. It shows that UFOs are real. I think so, too. This, this craft was described as being about 150 feet across, and it's hovering 500 to 800 feet in the air. So, if you folks, if you think about this, think about 500 feet. The craft itself is 150 feet across. That's literally right over your head pretty darn hard to miss or to think, oh, that's got to be a flock of seagulls. That's got to be the planet Venus. Um, it's got to be somebody's garbage can lid that's just being held aloft by the wind. It's a, it's a kite. Um, it's a <laughs> advertising banner from a plane. We can't see the plane, but there's... Think about this, folks. This is 150 feet across. It's right over your head, 500 feet right over your head. And it's hanging there, suspended on its edge. It's a vertical craft, and then it relaxes, comes into a horizontal shape, and then it, boom, it's gone out of the area. Boy Scouts are a trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. Notice the first <laughs> word, trustworthy. Uh-huh. So you've got 300 scouts and there are 50 adult leaders that see this thing. Are UFOs real? Some of them sure are. You're darn tootin'. I just, I love that story. I love that story. Yeah, when I found it, I'm like, oh, here we go again. You know, there are so many cases like this involving multiple witnesses, metallic objects, close up in this area, Catalina Island is right in the smack-dab center of this. Mm -hmm. uh, it's probably one of the best-viewing places. Um, there's Rancho Palos Verdes. It juts out at the southern end. Um, but anywhere you go, you know, the Pacific Coast Highway runs along the edge of the coast there for you know, a good couple hundred miles. You can't go a mile, maybe two or three, before there's another encounter somewhere along the coast highway there. That should be called the Extraterrestrial Highway. <laughs> this is Preston Dennett and Undersea UFO Base 
an in-depth investigation of USOs and the Santa Catalina Channel. And Preston, I want to take just a moment here as a side topic. Um, I went to your Facebook page and saw several posts about uh, Art Bell, uh, the legendary radio show host uh, just recently passed on. I don't know that we have yet a cause of death or if that's been released yet. Uh, anything you want to say about Art Bell? Um, yeah, I mean, he was a great guy, a true pioneer. I was on his show a couple of times at least. We talked about out-of-body experiences. Um, I remember he was pretty nervous about it, didn't really want to try it, a little scared about it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, um, we're truly honored to have had this guy in our world. He changed the field of UFOs, really popularized it, and uh, it's a great loss. Um, yeah, we're going to miss him. He had, he had great questions. He was very articulate. Um, I, I liked his, um, his style, and uh, he encouraged people to be part of the conversation. Uh, the legendary program he did with that guy that was allegedly flying the plane into Airy 51. Remember that show? That was Oh yeah. And the guys all of a sudden the guy was cut off. So you always kind of wondered what what happened there. Uh Art Bell, Godspeed and God bless you and your family and and the colleagues that uh that loved you. Okay, we're going to come back yep. from the top of the hour break. UFO sighting too. Go ahead. What was that? You also had an amazing UFO sighting. Oh, before we Art take, do you, can you comment about that? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, it was, uh, he was out there, this was in Nevada near the, where he was, you know, broadcasting from. Um, he was with his wife and they saw this triangular craft off in the distance and they slowed down and this thing actually went right over them. It was huge. It was silent and uh, clearly unexplained. And the way he put it was, if this is ours, it's a huge story. If it's not ours, it's a huge story. Either way. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, really amazing sighting. Okay, Preston, um, get one of your favorite stories from your brand new book, Undersea UFO Base, and we'll talk about that when we're back here. Uh, my friend, 22 books. Congratulations. Wow. Your search engines, he'll pop right up. I don't know how the guy does it, but it pops right up. The full address is PrestonDennett.Weebly, that's W-E-E-B-L-Y, dot com. You'll also find Preston Dennett on Facebook. The brand new book, Undersea UFO Base, an in-depth investigation of USOs in the Santa Catalina Channel with that gorgeous cover that Jim and I like. Jim, how's the coffee doing? It's doing fine. I just refilled your cup moments ago, as, as you noticed. Last night, I was reading Preston's book, and I burned the midnight oil. You know, I stayed up late. And it was so fun. I mean, uh -huh. there's, there's some books I read because it's the guest. I want to have the background. I want to get the material. But this is something that wasn't have to. It's I wanted to. And it was so I mean, it's relentless. There are so many stories in here. It's not just one or two. It's well, in the hundreds now. Yeah, and, and you know, time flows differently when you're doing that because, and we've all been there, I think. You'll say, oh, just one more chapter. 
I just want to read one more chapter or one more page or whatever. And, and before you know it, it's 4 o'clock in the morning. Folks, stay right there. We'll be right back. Uh, this is Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. And our special guest, Preston Dennett. I'm Scott Colborn, and you're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. We're going to be talking about dream interpretation, the guidance from the dream, how to interpret the dream, the symbols, metaphors, associations, and how to connect with that guidance in your life. Looking forward to next week's program with Dr. Jan Lindgren. And I had a great dream last night. A friend of mine, Melanie, was in the dream. And we had, we had a lot of fun. We were like old friends, ribbing each other. And uh, I woke up and I said, good morning, Melanie. <laughs> cool. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay, we've got Preston Dennett on the line here. And Preston is from, uh, where the heck are you from, Preston? Um, originally, I'm from Illinois, actually, Chicago. Oh. And uh, or south of there, actually, Waukegan. And uh, moved to California when I was around uh, seven years old. Uh huh. And you've been researching the area along the Southern California coastline, that channel, if you will, between the mainland and, if you will, part of it would be bordered by uh, uh, Catalina Island. And over the years, you've come across hundreds of reports of people that have seen UFOs over, on, and underneath the water. Uh, what's another great story from your book you can share with us? Um, yeah, I was trying to pick and choose over the break, and I'm like, hmm, because there's so many. <laughs> um, but what, the one I chose, it's just one that I'm fascinated by because the witness is so good. Um, he's an ex-submariner. He actually has driven a submarine in the Navy thousands of miles, uh, qualified lookout, trained observer, a really great witness. And this was in 1995. He and his friend, also a Navy guy, are on a convoy of two boats. They're taking one boat. They're in, this, in behind this other boat that's going north. Um starting from Dana Point, which is sort of the northern end of this whole area, up the coast. And it was a dark, stormy night, and uh, they're heading up along. They've you know, gone a couple hundred miles or so near San Simeon, which is, again, north of most of this activity, but I still think it's part of all this sort of a complex of a USO activity. And uh, they lose track of the other boat. Suddenly they can't raise it on radio. They don't see it. Like, oh, that's strange. And as they're going along, suddenly they see this bright yellowish orange light. And it's huge. It's ahead of them and to the right, and it's right offshore. And they're immediately puzzled because there's just no way this object, this light, can be there. Because they know from the maps they've got, the charts, and from their global positioning, that this is a very rocky coast in that particular area. It's very shallow and no craft are allowed there. They would sink. Mm -hmm. Here's this massive, it's massive, it's huge. It looks like the size of a tanker. And uh, maybe 50 feet offshore, 100 feet offshore. So they're like, hmm, you know, what are we going to do about this? When suddenly their own depth gauge, 
goes off and shows 15 feet. And they're a few miles offshore at this point. There's no way. Um, they knew exactly where they were because of their GPS. But they're getting these really erroneous readings on their depth gauge, saying 15 feet. And what happened because of this is they stopped looking at this USO and started worrying about their own craft. Mm-hmm. And so they move out to sea a little bit. And this is when it gets really weird. Um, they're cru- you know, cruising back into deeper water and uh, look back at this object. And now it's no longer on the shore. It's right ahead of them, maybe about a mile. Boom. They did not see it move, but suddenly it's there. And they don't know what to do at this point because it's moving towards them and they can't tell which way it's going to pass. Now, this is exactly how a lot of collisions have happened at sea and why there's very specific regulations on lights, on ships, mm-hmm. so you can tell you know, whether they're passing on the right or left. This had none of them. And so they stopped. They're just going to wait for this thing. And it gets closer and closer and closer and finally starts to pass on their left. And, you know, it's very stormy and lots of waves, so they're having trouble getting a good view of it. But finally, as it goes alongside them, um, less than a mile, they could see it was just this huge, huge bank of what looked like stadium lights. Uh, And it actually stops there and uh, sort of in a face-off. And they're like, hmm, what is going on? They could not identify this thing. They just couldn't. Wow, what a story. It's a dark and stormy night. And so they're, they're trying to control their boat. And this thing shows up. And these are people that have been out on the water a long time. Lots of experience. And what they're seeing is defying any rational explanation. They don't know what it is. Um, banks of stadium lights floating on top of the ocean. Uh-huh. Yeah, they said it was probably 400, maybe 600 feet across, a very big object, whatever it was. And uh, eventually just started uh, moving off. Lights dimmed down, and then just sat there, and just these giant orange pulsating lights kind of fluctuating, and uh, just could not identify it. It was the strangest thing. He's never seen anything like it. He estimated there were about 30, maybe 40 lights no portholes, no conventional lights, no masthead lights, running lights, nothing like this. And it just didn't fit the description of anything they've ever seen. And, uh, you know, they eventually just let, left it. They're mm-hmm. like, we're moving off, because it was, it was not leaving. And uh, that itself was making them increasingly nervous. And I have to tell you, I wonder about this case, because there's that one instance when it's right down the shore, and then suddenly it's right in front of them. And that is what I kind of look for. It's a period of discontinuity where there could possibly be missing time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't think so. Witnesses often don't, you know. But they were targeted. And, and this is something I've seen in a number of these cases. Boaters are actually targeted. These objects will come right toward the boat, hover over it, or right under it. And uh, that's what happened in this case. And I'm wondering if it might have been more than just a sighting. Or... I don't know. Or the boat that they were accompanying that they lost contact with. Where is this lost boat? 
Yeah, you know, eventually they caught up with it. They were fine. They didn't see anything, the second boat. Um, and, you know, there was this weird kind of squelching phenomenon. They didn't talk about the UFO they saw, USO. They didn't ask about it. They didn't even talk amongst each other about it. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like understood. We're not discussing this. Mm-hmm. Um, which, yeah, we've seen a lot in this field. Uh, and a number of cases like that in this uh, book as well. This is Preston Dennett, and it's the brand new book, Undersea UFO Base, an in-depth investigation of USOs, that's unidentified submerged objects in the Santa Catalina Channel. Um, Jim, there's a story in the, towards the rear of the book with a character um, of Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Jonathan mentions that he's from Nebraska. Does he now? Yeah, so we've got a Nebraska connection, don't we, Preston? How about that? <laughs> Always degrees of connection there. Yes, we do have UFO sightings in Nebraska. I think everybody in this room has seen one. He was part of a group of people that were on the beach and had uh, not just one, but a number of very strange things that happened to them. Wasn't his party also uh. that they were on the beach and suddenly there were individuals that came down as a group, walked down to the beach and walked right up through their group. Um, and it's left to our imagination to wonder who these newcomers were. Um, actually, that wasn't the Jonathan case. Cape, different case. I was, I was up late last night, folks. <laughs> <laughs> um, those are both great cases, though. Jonathan Fox case took place on Catalina Island, involved a large group of 11 witnesses. And uh, the case you're talking about took place at Leo Carrillo Beach uh, in Malibu, uh, right along the coast, and involved an actual sighting of humanoids and USOs and missing time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, both great cases. Uh, Recently, Chase Klotsky uh, did a study of an underwater area that people were talking about as being a potential location for a base. And she did that on behalf of MUFON. What did, what did she determine, Preston? Um, yeah, this is the Malibu anomaly, you know, which appeared kind of late in my research, I have to tell you. I've been speculating there was a base down here long before that ever came up. And apparently there's this anomalous structure um, off the coast of Malibu underwater. It's very large. It's got a very flat-looking top, what appear to be pillars, and a tunnel. And uh, there's been a lot of speculation that this is, could be an undersea base. The images are all over the Internet. They went viral. And uh, but the problem is the Google images are sometimes contradictory. And if you study them real closely... You can see that the pillars, the so-called pillars, are not particularly uniform and uh, look almost natural in parts. The tunnel disappears under some points of view and looks instead like a landslide. And the flat top, while unusual, you know, it's not maybe unusual enough to say that this is artificial. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, some skeptical viewpoints towards this and uh MUFON did a study on this, 
uh, with Chase Kolecki. She wrote about it, and their ultimate conclusion was probably natural. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is what the mainstream geologists have said. But uh, my question is, or, first of all, here it's right in the middle of all the activity. That's kind of coincidental. Second of all, I've had a number of what I would call whistleblowers, three or four of them at least, um, who wrote to me and said that there is a tunnel in this area. And again, this was before this all came out. And that there was a tunnel that actually leads from Area 51 in Nevada all the way underground to uh, Edwards Air Force Base, which leads underground to the Santa Catalina Channel. And it's big enough for submarines to travel through. So I'm wondering, okay, maybe this is it. And I don't see how you can choose the Google images, which do show an image, do show a, ch- a tunnel, any more than you can choose the ones that don't. Because that's not being objective. So I'm a little on the fence about it. I don't think it's been proven either way as a natural formation or not. And should it be natural, that doesn't preclude it from being used by USOs or the military for that matter. Um, and uh, should it be proved completely natural? It could be that the base is in another area. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I've got, it's just another data point pointing towards the possibility of a base. Which I've got like five or ten of them that are real strong. And uh, that's one of them. The fact that there's a number of encounters stretching for years and years is another. The fact that some people report to have apparently been taken down inside this base, that's another. Uh, you know, the, the whistleblower accounts. So there's all these data points pointing towards something really strange going on down there. And Preston, whether or not there is an actual base there, the activity that you catalog in the book is just undeniable. Lots of unexplained activity in that area. And one of the things that... Go ahead. One of the things that's really weird about this area, you know, I mean, a couple of things. Like, you're seeing lots of activity, but we have every single kind of shape of UFO coming out of this area that you can imagine. Whether it's saucer or cylindrical or box-shaped or manta ray shaped or I mean everything and another thing are what I call the mass encounters which are encounters involving giant fleets of ships mm-hmm. not hugely unusual in this field to see maybe two a do- five craft a dozen uh, but there's a bunch of cases involving a dozen a bunch involving more than that and at least three or four involving hundreds literally hundreds of objects. So, I mean, how do you explain that? And in terms of the uh, quantity of, of witness sightings, there are a number of reports, as we talked about earlier, the report of, from 1952, 300 Boy Scouts and 50 adult leaders seeing this thing hovering overhead uh, while they're on Catalina Island. So you've got not just one person walking out in the middle of the night and seeing something, or one person on a boat. You have a quantity of witnesses for a lot of these sightings. And it gets harder for me to accept that it's either a hoax 
a mass hallucination, some form of an illusion. Um, when you've got 350 people that are reporting essentially the same thing, <laughs> Dad told me a long time ago, where there's smoke, there's fire. <laughs> exactly. I mean, some, some of these cases involve thousands of witnesses. There's a few uh, involving some of these unusual cloud-like objects. And a lot of military witnesses, a lot of, you know, there's a Navy commander, mm -hmm. a Coast Guard captain, uh, all kinds of pilots. And uh, one point I do want to bring up is, you know, the military aspect. Because uh, people have asked me, could it possibly be that people are seeing military uh, advanced craft? And I'm going to say no. I mean, some of it, sure. I would say possibly a very small portion is military, but most of it's not. I've got five main reasons why I'm sh pretty sure that the military isn't responsible. Now, we should, I should point out that the Point Magoo Naval Base is right on the northern end. Mm -hmm. uh, there's San Clemente Island, which is just beyond Catalina, which is all military. That's where the Navy does all kinds of exercises. There's Seal Beach down at the southern end. Um, my point is it's surrounded by military, this body of water. But I don't think the activity is military for one reason, uh, is because people who have been taken inside these craft or seen them land or um, have had, you know, beings come out aren't seeing humans. They're seeing aliens. They're seeing extraterrestrials, greys, praying mantis type. Uh, in a few cases, you know, Nordic or humanoid looking, but definitely not your normal earthling. Um, secondly, people are seeing this um, over, I mean, it's, this activity is over a major population center. A lot of, the whole local area, they're aware of this. People go out there and watch this as a sort of a pastime. They'll sit out, out there on lawn chairs and watch this stuff. Uh, I just think that flies in the face of, it's contrary to how the military tests their advanced aircraft. Right. They don't do it over population centers. Thirdly, I'm going to say there's about 10, maybe 20% of these cases, uh, the objects are being pursued by military aircraft or chasing after them. Um, clearly not ours. Um, fourthly, the objects that we're seeing are doing things that are way beyond our own abilities to hover silently, move really fast. These things go in water and move underwater just as fast as they do move in the sky. So, I mean, really fast. Uh, there's other reasons. I mean, there's just too many of these craft, hundreds and hundreds at once. I can't imagine we even have that many advanced craft of any kind. Too many different types of craft. It's been going on for way too long. So there's just no way it's military. Yeah. Uh, Jim Preston brought up in, in that bullet point list uh, one of the great points, I think, that discourages me from thinking that this is all secret military stuff. If it's mechanical, it's going to break. Sure. And so... Absolutely. If you've got something that's an advanced aircraft of some kind, you want to have the ability to get to that and retrieve it or repair it. Why would you do it over one of the biggest population areas of the entire world? Mm -hmm. There's plenty of places out in the boonies where you can test stuff. 
You wouldn't, you wouldn't do it there. I keep thinking about the issue of the water displacement. I mean, these things travel easily through water, but you still have to displace a lot of water in a big hurry if you're going to move through. And that's, you know, I, I got to think about what happens to that water, what happens to things that are in that water. You know, it's like anybody that's done a belly flop into a swimming pool knows that a lot of water goes everywhere real fast. And hold my hand up. So that's going to be noticeable. Press, remember in the book, the several of the accounts where uh, a witness talks about an object coming out of the water and lifting with it a huge column of water yeah. that comes up yeah. out of the out of the sea and then there it collapses yeah. back down. Sure. Right. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about that because a lot of the cases don't have that. But there's a small smattering of cases that do. Mm-hmm. Um, no cases have any um, evidence of like a giant splash when they're going in or almost none. Um, but yeah, there's a couple. I mean, there was one on June 14, 1992, during this massive wave of sightings uh, all across the the uh, canyon there, the Santa Monica Mountains. There was one guy who was down by the beach and heard this massive waterfall, spins around, and sees this giant object has just come out of the water. It's about the size of a stadium, and waterfalls of water are just sluicing off mm-hmm. of it back into the ocean. And it darts. Zoom. <laughs> and it's gone. Maybe four seconds it was in view. Three seconds. And he knows how big it was because it had tiny little objects which were flopped around it. And they looked like little bugs, um, hmm. which were clearly, you know, large objects, probably around 20 feet, 30 feet across, he's guessing. So this big object must have been about the size of a stadium at least. Yeah, and something like that, if you move it through water at a great speed, you would think it would create kind of a mini tsunami of sorts. And uh, any any boats or other objects, even anywhere near it, would be tossed about incredibly. There's some weird stuff going on in the water there beyond uh, this USO stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Unusual dolphin activity. Um, There's been a lot of Navy sonar testing in mm-hmm. this area. There was a weird mystery missile in 2012 which came out of the water that no one will talk about. Yeah, when we come back from the bottom of the yard break, tell us more about that alleged missile launch. Uh, All right. There's a picture, I think, in the book here as well. Uh, yeah, it, I, I saw it. You did? I, I didn't see it actually take off, but I saw the contrail, absolutely. Huh. Everyone here saw it. Interesting. Well, okay, let's come back and talk about that after the bottom of our break here. This is Preston Dennett, and his website is prestondennett.weebly.com, or just using your favorite search engine, type in Preston Dennett. The author of over 22 books, including this brand new one, Undersea UFO Base, an in-depth investigation of USOs, that's unidentified submerged objects, in the Santa Catalina Channel. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim Shorty. Jim, how's your coffee doing? Pretty good. I think I'll refill it here. Sulawisi. Sulawisi. The old Celebes coffee. And then Celebes Colosi. And then Colosi. And now it's called Sulawisi. But it's still one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Okay. We're going to be right back here with Preston Dennett. And uh, 
We'll take a little bit of a music break. We'll come back with the announcements and then Preston Dennett. Sure glad that you folks are out there listening. I hope you're having a great morning. We'll be right back. Dr. Lindgren is an expert in dream interpretation, and we'll be talking about uh, understanding your dreams, uh, the guidance that literally comes to us each and every night, uh, the symbols and metaphors and associations that the dream theater uses to connect deep within us. Dreams are interesting because they they seem to go around the ego that stands at the gates and says, now I'm going to let this in, but I'm not going to let that in. And dreams have a way of slipping past that. Uh, and uh, it reveals to us, I think, a lot of important stuff. Uh, I do not subscribe to the idea that if you have a piece of pepperoni pizza late at night, you're going to have strange dreams. Uh, I don't think it's, it's that simple. I think there's something more complex and something much, much more interesting. Dr. Jan Lindgren, our next week's guest with Dream Interpretation, Understanding the Guidance of the Dream. Our special guest today is Preston Dennett, and Undersea UFO Base is his brand new book. It's subtitled, An In-Depth Investigation of USOs in the Santa Catalina Channel. And Jim, you're over here, and we're enjoying the conversation with Preston. Um, Preston, let's talk about that missile launch. That's very, very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I mean, right in the middle of where all this is going on. Um, this was on uh, November 8th, 2010. And suddenly this, what appears to be a missile coming up out of the water, straight up into the sky and, and off into, you know, no one knows where. Um, and uh, I saw this. I didn't see it actual take off but i saw this giant contrail i'm like wow what in god's name is that because it was much more uh, dramatic than any contrail i've ever seen mm-hmm. um, in this area and uh, it was all over the news and people were talking about it and we're trying to figure out what it was and the weird thing is of course the media goes to the military they filmed it uh and every military in this area denies any knowledge of it like nope don't know about it it's not us and put forth a a theory that it's a plane contrail but are unable to uh say which plane it is or where it came from um it was just a complete fiasco from the beginning because it was apparent to military experts that this was in fact a missile and the media eventually did start interviewing people who were in the military and said, oh yeah, this is obviously a missile, probably from a submarine, uh, possibly from a foreign submarine, uh, perhaps, you know, Japanese, Chinese, um, we don't know. Uh, but yeah, our military wasn't talking. They, they made the choice to cover it up, and to this day still say that it was probably a plain contrail. Now, I, I don't know the territorial limits. I imagine that off our uh, West Coast, they probably extend for um, 100, 200 miles, maybe. Uh, my question would be, would be, is that if this was a missile launch, was that that platform from which the missile was launched, was that within our territorial waters? So, uh, Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> if it is within our territorial waters, 
and it's actually a foreign vessel, that is a huge story. A huge story of somebody else's undersea vehicle, we'll use the term submarine, inside our territorial waters launching a missile. You can imagine there's a bunch of back channel conversation going on about that. <laughs> My goodness, was that a bargaining ship that some other world power was using to demonstrate that they have the ability to, to come in here undetected and do that? Yeah, I would say they were sending us a message. Uh, was, that, um, was that our stuff? And we were simply uh, decided to yeah. do that. And where did that missile go? Well, and they do test those things now and then. Where'd the missile go? Was it tracked by anybody? Well, I'm sure NORAD no, tracked it. The plane contrail. So. <laughs> well, yeah, Jim just says, I'm sure that NORAD would have been tracking that. Yeah. So there's got to be ballistic someplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they're, they're, they're maintaining the plane theory, so they're not saying. And uh, maybe it was ours. Yeah, maybe we were shooting at a USO. That's another theory I wondered about. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but for some reason, they don't want us knowing about this. Perhaps it's just a national security thing or whatever. But the fact that it's right in the middle of all this USO activity you know, where all this sonar testing is going on, where all the, you know, it's unusual, mm -hmm. to say the least. Help me with my geology or my geography, rather. Uh, where is San Diego in all this? Is it way to the south? Yeah, San Diego would be the extreme southern end. There are a couple of cases towards that area. Um, so it's quite some distance away. Um, but, you know, visible, certainly on a very clear day. Mm -hmm. Not that far down. And San Diego is 150 miles to the south, just north of the border of Mexico, but if, the entire Southern California coast is active. If, if you were on the, the coast there, can you see Catalina Island? Um, if you go a little bit uh, to the north, San you know, Clemente is not that far. Um, you know, I don't know. I think it's possible. I'd have to look into that. But, uh, yeah, you can see Catalina when it's clear. But you can see Catalina from pretty much anywhere along the Southern California coast. Mm-hmm. And apparently, you know, Boy Scouts camp there. There are some people that live there. Um, you referenced, I think, one individual that, that had a business located there. So there's apparently homes there and businesses. Oh, yeah. It's a little touristy kind of resort town. A wonderful place to visit if you've never been there. It's really beautiful. Um, I've been there like three or four times now. Uh, just recently went there uh, with a work trip at my office. And uh, it was funny. We took this little tour around the island. And the tour bus driver was like mentioning, oh, and according to some sources, there are UFO accounts in these areas. <laughs> <laughs> UFO accounts. And everyone at work turns and looks at me. <laughs> yeah, who are you going to call? You're going to call Preston. <laughs> yeah, well, I thought that was pretty funny. If you can find that, that tour bus driver, that would be fun to get him a copy of your book now. Yeah, right? I'm 
Yes, this activity is very well known on the island. Um, there, it, locally, it's you know definitely a thing. Mm-hmm. People know about it. And in the in the annals of uh, ufology, leaving that specific area and looking at other areas of the world, there are many many cases of UFOs seen uh, over, on top of, or in the water. Uh, I mentioned the Charles Fort cases from the 17 and 1800s that that he researched primarily through uh, newspaper clippings and histor- historical society documents. Um, any any place that you've got a body of water, uh, there have probably been uh, reports of UFOs around that. Yeah, it's really surprising when you have smaller bodies of water, like little, there's a bunch of reservoirs in upstate New York. Uh, when I wrote UFOs over New York, I remember there was a good half dozen cases of objects coming out of these little reservoirs. Uh, but, yeah, there's a Lake Hamilton in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Got a case there. Got a case off the coast of Florida in the Bahamas. Got a case, really interesting case, involving a submariner uh, off the coast of uh, the East Coast in 1971. Uh, cases all over the world, one in Haiti, uh, the Coast Guard captain t- told me about. Uh, so, yeah, it's definitely a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, and then you've got, in that area, you've got uh, Los Angeles Airport. And uh, I don't know if uh, Chicago has the world's busiest, but certainly Los Angeles ranks right up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and literally in that and adjoining that airspace, you've got lots of accounts that Preston points out. Um, he's written about in his book, UFOs Over California, and uh, there is an appendix, appendix in the back of this book that talks about UFOs over Los Angeles, the, uh, the, the airport there. So, yeah, I, I had to include that. I, I mean, it's right there on the water. Um, it's part of this whole phenomenon. Uh, like many airports, uh, they attract UFOs for whatever reason. I, mean, I think in some ways it's obvious. They're there to inspect our own aircraft. But LAX is a huge airport right in the water, right next to all this activity, and has a, just a real long history of attracting UFOs. Uh, I had to include that because I found some more cases. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this area is just driving me nutty, I'm telling you. Well, I would bet now, with the publication of your book and your appearances on uh, radio shows and TV shows, you're just going to get all the more reports from people. Yeah, and I am. There's a, a lady who was at Zuma Beach looking out at the water, saw something under the water. It was big. It was very bright. And she's looking at it, trying to figure out when it darts underwater in a period of seconds, moves, zips north towards a Point Magoo. When I was speaking up in a, a UFO con, 2018, just last month, um, I was, you know, the book had just been published and uh, talking a little bit about it, and uh, Melinda Leslie comes up to me. She's an abductee who's pretty well known in this field, and uh, I've actually written about her in one of my other books. She's had a number of experiences, and uh, 
just, oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know, this book. I, I didn't tell you about my own USO account, did I? I'm like, well, no, you didn't. And she had this really amazing encounter, which unfortunately isn't in the book. But she and her two friends, who were all actually abducted in a previous encounter, had heard about the activity and decided to go look for it themselves. And they went to the Marina del Rey area, which was reporting a lot of activity at the time. This was in the mid-1990s. And uh, they are just kind of hanging out there waiting for some UFOs, some USOs to show up, which they didn't. And they're like waiting and waiting. And finally, her two friends turned to her and says, well, Melinda, you can do astral travel, right? Why don't you go out of your body and call them? And hmm. Melinda's actually really good at this astral travel stuff, which, as you know, I'm a huge believer in. I've done a lot of it myself. Not as good as it is her. She can apparently just, you know, turn it on at will. And so she meditates, goes out of body to look for this alien base and finds it, actually finds it. Wow. She, she's telling me this. Uh, she's going down, dives into the water, finds this massive structure, goes inside of it. It's very technological, metallic, and there's gray type ETs and they're looking at her and they're not happy. They're like, what are you doing? here who are you what's going on she gets alarmed and pulls out and you know darting back towards her friends and looking down in the water sees these massive objects coming out of the base towards you know where their group is she jumps back into her body she jumps up she's like they're coming they're coming and her friends are like oh yeah right you know we were just kidding you know She's like, no, no, they're coming. I, I swear to God, they're coming. And sure enough, all three of them saw these bright objects come zooming from, uh, under the water, right up off the coast there. And for a second there, they thought they were all going to get abducted <laughs> again. Uh, but that didn't happen. The object did not come up out of the water. They just came up there and then moved off. Um, multiple objects. And But, yeah, it's another dramatic and really weird USO sighting and another data point towards pointing towards you know, this actual base because that's the third person I've talked to or you know, found out about uh, who claims to have been actually inside it. I'm interested in the implications of the fact that they could see her when she was out of her body. What does that tell you? I mean, that turns up in other cases, certainly. Um, people have had out-of-body experiences aboard UFOs. Um, there's some people who traveled out-of-body to Area 51. Mm -hmm. uh, there was an experiment about that. and some of the, Sometimes they were perceived by the ETs, yes. who were, again, not happy about it. I find that very but interesting. Able to stop them. <laughs> yeah, they're apparently aware of us in our astral form. And let's close with this final story from Catalina Island. And again, we go to the Boy Scouts. Uh, this is from Preston's brand new book, Undersea UFO Base. And this was from June 26, 2013. From page 114, Alan Bergholt, 14, is camping with other Boy Scouts on Parsons Landing, a remote beach area on the extreme north end of Catalina, Catalina Island. And he was enrolled at the Emerald Bay Boy Scouts camp. Uh, Preston, what happened there? Oh, just an amazing encounter. One of the most amazing in the book. Uh, yeah, this big fog rolls in. 
they all make dinner, they set up their tents, they eat, fog rolls out, you know, it's around 9 o'clock in the evening or so, and they're in their tents, Alan's in his tent with his two friends, and they see these three massive bright lights, which are clearly not stars. They're jiggling around, they're changing colors, and then they start spewing forth UFOs, uh, all these different objects. First it was like a wave of 10, then a another wave of 10 or 20, and then more of these objects. Uh, and they start darting around. They're moving uh, off into the distance. Sometimes they're coming close, and they get a really good look at these objects. They can see a dome on them. They can see uh, that they've got different multicolored lights, purple, green, blue, red, yellow lights. Really beautiful. Uh, they're totally silent. They're hovering, they're turning at right angles, uh, and uh, there's more waves of them. I mean, it got so active, they were cordoning off the sky to sort of uh, watch the activity. And uh, different types of objects, too. Little spheres, saucer-shaped objects, cylindrical objects, massive boat-like objects, uh, all different kinds of shapes and sizes. It was just baffling to them. And uh, apparently, they weren't, I mean, obviously, they weren't the only ones seeing this. All the people around them were also seeing this stuff. Some were trying to take pictures. Turned out they couldn't because in two different cases, the cameras, the battery just drained to zero. And uh, so no pictures were taken. And this activity went on for over an hour, probably close to two hours, until suddenly it stopped. And just very strange. It was clearly some sort of display. They counted probably 200, maybe 300 objects. And there was other weird things. I mean, there was this weird optical effect. Oh, I, I'm glad you're bringing this up because I wanted the, to to get to this. Yeah, I mean, this in the same area too is you know that we were talking about that other case, the, the optical effect around that UFO. Well, these guys were looking at the coast, which is you know minimum 26 miles away where they were at you know on the northern end they're looking towards the coast closer to 40 miles they could see individual cars they could see individual buildings they could see the coast highway you could see this actual lighthouse um in perfect detail as if it was magnified as if there was some sort of weird time space hmm. distortion that made it look like the coast was much closer than it actually was yeah, Jim, the, the, probably what happened. The lighthouse was 90 miles away. Oh, wow. And they had this optical thing that they could see it. They could see, as, like Preston said, across the water to the Southern California coastline. They could see cars on the highway. They could see houses. Wow. 26 miles. So the, the question that comes into my mind, uh, being a logical kind of guy, I have to ask, why are they doing this? Uh, it's, it's your belief that they were just putting on a show to show us their capabilities? Um, I don't know. I, 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 you know I, don't, I don't know the answer to that question. It's very strange. Yeah. Uh, I think they have to know they're being observed. They have to. Uh, and why do it when there's so many people watching? Yeah. Um, when there's, you know, everyone's camping out there. There's only, you know, they're not there all the time. There's 
other times to do this. They could have done it later at night when everyone was asleep. Uh, but no, prime viewing time, prime time, literally. Uh, so my guess is on some level it is a display. Maybe it's an evacuation. This is another thing I've wondered mm. about and other witnesses have as well, uh, particularly when it's involving hundreds of objects. Maybe they're you know moving stuff around. I don't mm, know. Stuff around. Very uh, strange. Uh, Perhaps someone or something escaped from their custody and they were in a mad rush to recover it? Or a portal, a oh, dimensional yeah. doorway, uh, some sort of a conduit uh, between here and someplace else. And that appears to be, uh, or maybe what's going on over that area in that airspace or perhaps in the water. Preston, one thing's for sure, with the publication of this book, you're going to get a lot more reports. So mm-hmm. please keep us surprised and... You're one of our favorites, Preston. We really appreciate you. Hey, thanks, Scott. I really appreciate that. And uh, always have a blast with you guys. And uh, thanks very much for having me on the show. What are you doing for the rest of the weekend? Oh, I'm going to, you know, the usual, clean the house, relax, do a little writing. I was thinking of uh, putting, excerpting a book or an article from the book about voters who are targeted and sending that off to a magazine. Mm-hmm. Um and, uh, yeah, basically just having fun and relaxing. It's been a long, tough week. Fun is good. you got to have fun. Thank you, Preston, thanks for being here, and thanks for sharing your information from your brand-new book, Undersea UFO Base. Have a great rest of weekend, hey. my friend. Thanks, Scott. Thank you very much. Preston Dennett. Type his name in. It pops right up. Uh, the full address is prestondennett.weebly.com. The book is Undersea UFO Base, an in-depth investigation of USOs in the Santa Catalina Channel. Next week's guest, Dr. Jan Lindgren, we're talking about dreams. And with that, sweet dreams, ladies and gentlemen. And we'll talk to you more about those dreams next week. I've had uh, an interesting week myself. Had a great synchronicity yesterday that we'll talk about next week. I read Jan. about that, yeah. And uh, had a great dream with uh, a friend of mine last night. I'm looking forward to more of the same. Thanks so much for listening, folks. Jim, thanks for being here. Oh, great fun. I love Preston's stories. Victor's in the house with Mesoterra. Stay great tuned for music. some great music coming up right after this. I'm Scott Colborn. Thanks for listening. Until next week, walk in beauty.